and try again. Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. Oh, what up? And shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, as always, my friend, my mentor, my teacher, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Shalom, Caleb. How's it going? It is going very well. All right. I have to. I have to uh, borrow a saying from Dave Ramsey. I'm doing better than I deserve. <laughs> nice. I, uh, uh, Rob, and I were just talking right before we came on the air. And we said that we should maybe start calling our show Off the Cuff. You're listening to Off the Cuff with Caleb Hag and Rob Van Hoff. Because uh, a lot of what we do on this show is just that, Off the Cuff. We, uh, we, don't, we, don't, uh, we, we talk about things for about five minutes <laughs> before we record. And, and that's about it. So you get another one of the uh, Off the Cuff shows. This is going to be a good one, we hope. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. All, uh, what, 35 of you? I think that's how many we've decided to listen to us. We're up to 36 now. 36 on a regular basis. Yes, very good. Well, uh, what's been going on, Rob? How you doing, brother? Doing very well. Yeah. I'm excited about just things that are going on here in our local community, our, yeah. our little budding Torah community here in the Spokane Valley. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's not a smooth ride. There's all sorts of bumps and uh, doctrinal winds that people come along with, you know. And, and I don't think that's just uh, in the Spokane Valley. I think that's pretty much everywhere. Yeah. And, and just so uh, being in uh, one of the people in a more leadership teaching position, it, it's uh, always a challenge to to uh, uh, keep that, that uh, <laughs> deep reaction, you know, that I want to uh, – it's not of the Lord, of course. That, uh, keep that at bay. You know that. Yeah, I fight uh, that urge all the time yeah, too. Yeah, urge. Just, that's the, the word. The land, to... land blast people at every turn. Yeah, I'm, I'm with. And you I just that. realize, you know, I, 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 I'm growing in an appreciation for, um, in a way that I never saw before. Just recently, uh, for the path that uh, the Lord has had me on over the last uh, ten years or more. Um, because I can look back now and I see what I'm confronting now and I see how he's uh, really, he knows what he's doing and I need to learn to really, really rest in that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of prep, he prepares each one of us for things he has for us to do. That's right. And uh, while we're being prepped, we don't always see that and we can k- kick and scream and grumble uh, just like uh, our ancient ancestors in the wilderness, you know, but uh, we have a sure hope you know it's not without faith but it um but it, you know his thoughts are way above our thoughts that's absolutely right you know i'm i've uh i've been working for the past oh man a couple months now on uh what we're calling well what has been called around the office the community package and uh basically if you're in a small community if you're in a small study group or something like that uh keep your eye on our website because this package is going to be for you 
Uh, I've been basically what I did was I took all of this audio. There's got to be probably about 20 hours of audio of my father's teaching on building different communities or building community and, and then different foundational issues. And uh, I put it all together and put all the notes together and we're going to have it out hopefully in the next week or two. So yeah, I've been looking at communities too. And, and just the, uh, you know, I pray daily. This is no joke. I pray almost every single morning that the uh, Lord will if it's his will to please not put me in a place of leadership in my life, uh, because I see I see how uh, how it works. I see uh, the stress that goes on, and uh, you know how taxing it is, and how time consuming it is. And I really respect you guys who uh, who are leading communities out there. Uh, it's it's a job I pray I never have. However, if the Lord puts me there, I guess I'll I'll do it. But uh, yeah, I commend you for. Uh, being in that role, Rob. Good job, man. Well, thank you. You know, and I was actually uh, bragging on you a little bit, too, on this last Shabbat, because we have some different uh, folks that come that have different uh, degrees and musical interests and degrees Ah, of talent. And I said, you know, my friend Caleb, uh, Lord willing, will be here in a month or so and see if I can uh, have him bring his electric cello. Ah, yes, the electric cello. Actually, (laughs) that puts a a bug in my my ear. Maybe... uh, uh, maybe I'll try to wrangle up some of my uh, some of my cello playing for our uh, music when we uh, go to commercial and we when we come back. Oh, that'd be great. All right, hey, let's talk about some issues that are going on. You know, we, we're t- today we're going to be talking about circumcision again. We're, last week we we took a break from circumcision. Uh, this week we're going to talk about circumcision in uh, first century Judaism. And Rob has done. I keeps. I say this like every single week. Rob's done work on this subject. Uh, first, though, I want to talk about what's going on on social media. Uh, a lot of the time, I don't really talk about these kind of things uh, because, I don't know, maybe you folks out there who are listening are on social media. Maybe you're not. But uh, every once in a while, some things go on that uh, really get me going. And this past week has been one of those weeks Before I get into this, if you want to be a part of this conversation, go ahead and shoot us an email. Email us at radio at TorahResource.com. That's radio at TorahResource.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Caleb Hag. There's two G's in Hag. Or you can follow Rob Van Hoff on Twitter at Rob Van Hoff. If you speak Hebrew or read Hebrew, then Rob's the one to follow because uh, he makes a lot of posts in the Hebrew language. Without the vowel pointings, I might add. Uh oh. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good <laughs> for us. For us uh, students of Hebrew, right now, you know, I'm in Hebrew exegesis at Torah Resource Institute. So a lot of the time, I'll get on there and I'll try to, you know, I'll try to figure out exactly what you're saying with, you know, in your in your Twitter posts. It's good. So follow Rob on Twitter, even if you even if you don't read Hebrew. He he posts a lot of good stuff. Um, so. Basically, I have a couple of policies on my Facebook page. Number one, I don't say no to any friend request. I just say yes, and then if I don't like what a person's saying or doing on Facebook, I just unfollow them. They, they can still see my stuff. but uh, So I have a lot of friends that are from the Christian church that I grew up in. I have a lot of friends that I have never met before but are in Messianic communities, and I'm grateful because a lot of the time they post really good stuff, so I'm grateful to, to be friends with people like that. Uh, all that just to say that I also follow Dr. Michael Brown. Dr. Michael Brown has been on this show before. He uh, is a 
charismatic, I think he would probably classify himself as. He's also uh, he also holds to an Arminian viewpoint, uh, which we do not. That all that being said, Doctor Brown does have a lot of really great stuff to say on, on certain issues, and he is fighting the fight right now against homosexual marriage um, in the U.S. and uh, Honestly, I got online this last week. I listened to a two-hour debate that he had with a man who uh, is a – I think he might actually be a pastor or something to that effect, but he's a homosexual in the church. Now, I know that there are some little ears listening, so I'm going to try to be very sensitive with this issue. But I want to talk about it because I think it's an issue that is – I mean, it's raging on social media right now, and I just want to touch on it just a little bit. So – uh, for those who don't know, well, first let's start with this. Okay. Uh, on, I, on my Twitter feed, I follow one of the lead singers in a band that I listened to when I was growing up, Jars of Clay. I really enjoyed their music. I thought their lyrics were great. Well, their lead singer came out and he made a comment that basically said, uh, I don't get what the big deal is with, uh, gay marriage. You know, as Christians, we should love, we shouldn't hate, we should, uh, you know, and the the comment that really, really got to everybody was he says, I don't care what the Bible says because it talks about love and it talks about accepting people. So that's all I care about. So he ba- said that. Yeah. So basically, this is what what brought the hailstorm from all different uh, all different sides. And Dr. Brown and Dr. R.C. Sproul uh, jumped on the bandwagon to defend the Bible. And good for them. Very, very good for them. Oh, yeah. And they, uh, Brown wrote something and posted it. It was called Pro Gay Jars of Clay Singer Schooled by Christian Leaders. Okay, so I reposted this, and, th- and I, I'm taking a long time to get to the point of this, okay? Basically, I see this as being a huge problem because when I posted this, I said, uh, you know, uh, sprawl and I agree with sprawl and Brown on this. You know, we should love people and we should try, you know, we should try to, we should remember that we're all sinners and, and all this kind of stuff, but we should hold to God's law. And what I said was sprawl and Brown, you know, I'm, I'm on their side on this, but they, they, their punch lacks a little because they say things like, you know, God won't turn his, his back on an abomination. But then at the same time, they, uh, they throw out the kosher laws, they throw out the Sabbath, all these kind of things. And so my point was, you know, their, their, uh, their punch is not that forceful uh, within the doctrine of throwing the Torah out. Well, I got some, uh, good co- some good feedback and I got some interesting bad feedback back. And uh, one, of the, one of the people responded, and they quote out of the article that was posted. They say, this issue will separate the true Bible believers from those who put experience or personal relationship above Scripture, end quote, said one of those guys in the article. Yes, I put personal relationships above Scripture. So did Jesus. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. This is an epidemic. And I... I it's an epidemic within the church and within believers, and that's why I want to talk about this. This is a huge problem, and the reason why is because people who are believers have children who are uh, growing up and coming out of the closet saying that they're gay, and uh, you have uh, you know friends that now are living uh, this lifestyle and whatnot of these believers, and these believers know that these people are good people, quote-unquote good people, 
And it's the personal relationship that they try to reconcile. They say, okay, well, this person, I know this is a good person. God wouldn't condemn this person. You know, they, they, they might even believe in Jesus and these kind of things. Um, I, I can't believe that this is what's happening. Uh, and I, but I guess if you pull on the thread of, of throwing Tor out of the window, that's what happens, right? And you pull on one thread and what happens? Pretty soon the sweater's gone. Uh, I want to make a, just on this issue, first, uh, Dr. Brown wrote a, just came out with a book, I think three days ago, two days ago. It's called Can You Be Gay and Christian? Responding with Love and Truth to Questions About Homosexuality. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Dr. Brown is extremely eloquent. Uh, when, when it comes to this issue. And so I, I commend everyone to uh, uh, maybe pick up this book. I haven't read this book, so I can't really recommend it. But th- there's plenty of literature that Dr. Brown has done online and uh, YouTube videos. Uh, take a look. He, he is very good at what he's talking about. But I want to just uh, read something. Once again, I'm going to plug Rob Van Hoff's class, Contemporary Judaism. He made us read a article this last week. And I want to read something out of this article. And I think basically this person is not a believer. I believe this person is an Orthodox Jew. It's called Religion Allied to Progress. So basically... Uh, this oh, that's uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch. That's so right. he's mid-1800s <clears throat> German rabbi. Yeah, go ahead and, and, and give us the rundown of... Uh, it was done in 1854. Give us a rundown of what this, this paper... Uh, what is Religion Allied to Progress? Yeah, from? well, um, this is one of Hirsch... Uh, now there's two Hirsches. There's like the Hirsch Pentateuch. That's that comes out of England. That's a that's H E, not H I. But in any case, mm-hmm. <laughs> so Samson Raphael Hirsch. Also, you might see S R Hirsch. He was a German rabbi in the 19th century. Like you said, he was a prolific writer. He wrote this and other articles to defend uh, what he saw as German Orthodox tradition, Jewish tradition, being threatened by the rise of the reformers, mm-hmm. the, the reform German Jews. Remember, uh, reform Judaism had its earliest uh, seeds, I guess, really uh, start to sprout in Germany in the early 19th century, um, and then kind of moved to America uh, by the end of the 1800s. It, um, but in any case, uh, Hirsch is responding to these Reformed Jews who are saying uh, there's a way for us to be Jews and to worship um, the God of Israel without uh, having to uh, adhere to traditional halakha. That's right. And so this phrase that is used, that uh, th- this phrase is religion allied to progress. In other words, uh, the Bible ba- basically, or the Torah is what Hirsch would say, the Torah basically, and I think he would say oral tradition is, as well. I, we obviously wouldn't say that, but uh, but the Torah uh, conforms to, as, as the progression of society happens, the Torah uh, also uh, progresses and is kind of this living, breathing thing that, that changes and uh, conforms to society is basically what right. this, uh, this phrase, now, religion, now in progress. Day, it was like bringing an organ into the synagogue, doing the liturgy in German, and uh, having sermons, mm-hmm. you know, it started to look a lot like, and building what they called temples, things that looked an awful lot like, uh, you know, these big churches. And so when I, when I was in Sweden, that was all what, what progress meant uh, in that time. There's a, when I was in Sweden, I, I looked for a synagogue that I could do- daven at and right in Stockholm, there's a, you have to go down an alley. This is no joke. You go down an alley and 
uh, you kind of as as the buildings go by, all of a sudden there's this courtyard on the left hand side, and the synagogue is a small, not to scale, but small replica of the temple in in Jerusalem that fell in 70. Oh, wow. Uh, It's quite a sight to behold, honestly. And uh, I saw it, and then I realized that they had armed guards (laughs) in the front making sure that uh, people who went in were... Anyway, this is totally off subject. But yes, you're right. So this is what what Hirsch is speaking against, is is this idea of reform. Um, So the the catchphrase that he's speaking against is religion allied to progress. And he said... uh, you know, I should just say before before I read this, you know, one of the things that's going that I think is going to happen with the with the homosexual issue within the church and in uh, society in general is the same thing that happened with uh, you know the uh, uh, equality of of uh, blacks in America. Now, obviously, I I my sisters are black. I obviously believe that there should be equality within race. Of course, and uh, but the same thing is going to happen where if uh, we speak against uh, homosexuality, I believe it will get to the point where we will be classed as the same as the KKK or the bigots or, you know, and it's already kind of there, but uh, it depends where you live in the United States. Here in Seattle, in the Seattle area where I am, this is definitely already happening. If if you uh, speak out against homosexuality, your your class is a bigot, and uh, uh, you know you're you're no you're no better than the KKK member down the road. Um, so this is what Hirsch says, and and the reason I like this is because I think it speaks directly to the to the issue that that we're facing with the homosexual uh, issue in America. He says, "Religion allied to progress." Do you know, dear reader, what that means? Virtue allied to sensual enjoyment. Uh, rectitude allied to advancement, uprightness allied to success. It means a religion and a morality which can be preached also in the haunts of vice and iniquity. It means sacrificing religion and morality to every man's momentary whim. It allows every man to fix his own goal and progress in any direction he pleases and to accept from religion only that part which does not hinder his, quote, progress or even assist it. It is the cardinal sin which Moses of old described as a casual walking with God. Civilization and culture, we uh, we all treasure those glorious and in, in, inalienable possessions of mankind. We all desire that the good and the true, all that is attainable by human thought, all human power, should be the common heritage of all men. But to make religion, which is the mother and father of all civilization and culture, depend upon the progress of this same civilization and culture would mean throwing it into the melting pot of civilization. It would mean turning the root into the blossom. It would mean crowning the human edifice with that which should be its foundation and cornerstone. He couldn't have said it better, honestly. Uh, You know, the idea that Jesus loved so we should love uh, I agree with that. We should love, and we should come to uh, people who preach things like uh, homosexual marriage. Uh, we should come to those people with love, but we should remember that God is a just God. He will not turn his back on justice. Uh, you know, I think it doesn't need to be said, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, I personally, and I know the people and the teachers at Torah Resource and Torah Resource Institute, boldly stand against the idea that homose- uh, homosexual lifestyle uh, is in line with what God wants. We do not believe that, and we will stand against it. And I think that you should too. If you're listening to this and you are wavering on on this because you might have friends, you know, I, I've been in that situation. I have friends who who live a homosexual lifestyle, 
and uh, I've distanced my, myself from them. But at the same time, uh, you know, it, it's hard because you want to love people that you that you've known for a long time. You want to uh, still be friends with people. You think that they're good people, but uh, they're not living a life unto God. And that's true not just of people who uphold homosexual marriage and those and homosexual lifestyle, but just sin in general. It's not just one issue. It's sin in general. And uh, I think one of the worst things that the church has done to allow this kind of uh, theology to creep in is to downplay the idea of, of uh, um, intimacy and, and sex before marriage and these kind of issues and also uh, you know, adultery, which is, I think, running rampant in the uh, in the church today. So anyway, if you uh, if you disagree with us on that, please, I'm more than willing to discuss these issues. So with all that being said, do you have anything else to well, say? Yeah, about I, any I that? would like to go say for some it. Things. You know, I mean, we we're in a situation here where we are allied with those who also serve, seek to serve Yeshua you know, the Messiah and walk in the Torah all across the world that are in different nations that have different types of law, you know, governments. And so there's a, in one respect, we can't depend on our local American government, you know, to be the be all end all, of mm-hmm. course. Uh, and so, um, you know, some of our listeners might, you know, Lord willing, are from other countries that have, are dealing with different kinds of issues in their governments. Uh, so no human government that we have today is is going to be representative of the Torah of Messiah. Now, That's right. in America, we're in a, a really unique situation in that we have the ability to uh, and responsibility to vote and participate in the, um, in the democracy or the republic, if you will. Um, but, and so this is just a challenge for us is that uh, – uh, how do we define marriage? And I think, you know, building up what we're uh, calling Torah communities, you know, in Messiah, um, that we, we will, we're, we're going to have very specific context for what marriage means and how we define it and how we, um, uh, ex- uh, you know, exam- uh, show, demonstrate it through our own marriages, etc. Um, but, uh, just a side news, there was an article in the New York Times yesterday about the first openly gay bishop of the Episcopal, Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. uh, Robinson. He's uh, and his husband are getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a, a just a strange kind of uh, 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 side to the article you just quoted from uh, Samson Raphael Hirsch, religion allied to progress. Well, uh, Bishop Robinson is is now the senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in Washington D.C. So that word "progress" is part of his title, mm-hmm. and he um, was invited by Obama, President Obama, to give the closing prayer at the at the White House's Easter breakfast. Mm-hmm. So this is back to this theme of progress and religion tied together that uh, Hirsch, you know, 150 years ago was writing against. Here it is we see alive in a well today. Caleb, I think you have your pulse right on the, the issue there. It's, it's really no different. Some of the, it, it, uh, you know, the names have changed, you know, and the, the specifics have changed. But the general theme is that, yeah, let's bring to the White House to bless our, you know, to close our, our Easter breakfast 
with prayer by um, this openly gay, well, you know, quote unquote I, bishop. One of the things that I think uh, one of the, one of the things that I think is probably uh, where we as believers probably get off track a little bit is the fact that we don't, you know, I think there's a, a large push against homosexuality, which and there very well should be uh, from believers, but I think that we should push just as much against things like uh, you know sex before before marriage and uh, uh, you know adultery and uh, these kind of things. Things. And so I think when the outside world looks in at uh, the Christian church and sees them, uh, you know, holding such a hard line for, uh, you know, against one thing, but then being very soft on others, that's a problem. And the other thing that uh, we need to remember is even if we, when we're coming to people who don't necessarily believe or whatnot, it doesn't mean that we should bash them over the head with the Bible. We should come to them with love and, uh, you know, in, with respect. And I think that one of the biggest ways that we can minister to people is through our own lives and the way that we, uh, you know, not being hypocrites and, and trying to uphold Torah within our own lives. When we do that, people see it. And uh, I think that's a, that's a huge witness. So, yeah. Uh, be encouraged if you're out there uh, and you think that you're the only one who's fighting against these things. Dr. Brown is definitely, uh, he's taking it. He's taking a hard hit from a lot of different angles. And uh, we stand with, with Dr. Brown on this issue. That's for sure. We don't on every issue, but on this one, we definitely do. Well, and you know what? Dr. Brown has to lean on the Torah for this. Oh, absolutely. You know, like it or not, uh, no matter what, and I don't, you know, I can't speak to represent Dr. Brown's perspectives on the Torah because I have not researched that, so I'm not uh, in a position to speak. But I I would say that uh, when we're talking about, you know, do's and don'ts, we're talking about God's commandments. Well, and and the other thing that, you know, I I know that we're spending a bit of time on this, and that's okay. Uh, But one of the things that was interesting about this comment from someone on on my post, you know, that Jesus says, who is without sin, uh, cast the first stone. Well, there's obviously other things going on in that passage, and we don't need to get into that. But the idea that God's love somehow overshadows and uh, overpowers God's justice is I think shows a lack of understanding of the word of God and the way that uh, uh, the way that God's holiness works. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that God's love is 100% intertwined with God's justice. Justice and love are, are uh, one and the same when it comes to, you know, God's holiness. You have to have both or there is no such thing as God's love. And so to say that God would relent on something or that God would, uh, you know, he won't, he won't see justice in the end because his love is going to overshadow it, I think shows a, a lack of understanding of what God's love actually is. Do you agree with that, Rob? Yeah, I totally agree. That is, uh, it, well, we're thinking about God's holiness. That's right. I mean, uh, it, to the degree that we <laughs> believe and are humbled by and overwhelmed by God's majesty and his holiness, um, which is really unfathomable, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we'll have eternity to to grow in that knowledge yeah. of, of his wisdom, but, uh, but his holiness, boy, we, you don't mess with that. I mean, like just, I mean, we're reading in, uh, Vaikra in, in Leviticus now in, in our, in the one year Torah cycle, boy, he's serious about his holiness. That's right. That's right. Uh, there's no, 
There's no negotiations. Well, and, you know, I guess my final point on this issue is this. You know, when, when, if, if you're listening to this and you are, uh, you know, you're part of a, uh, you know, evangelical Christian uh, church or, you know, you're not convinced that Torah is uh, uh, still an act today, this is the road that it, it starts to lead to. You give up on the Torah and all of a sudden what happens? You give up, you start giving up on the rest of the, of the Bible. You know, if you can throw one part of God's scriptures out that says it's forever, then why can't you throw the rest of it out? And that's the, that's the ultimate point here, uh, is that when we as, as believers and Torah pursuing believers, when we say that we disagree with the idea of homosexuality, uh, somebody says, well, you know, you, you know, they have their arguments for the Greco-Roman, you know, interpretation in the in in Paul's letter to the Romans. So where else are you going to get it? And we say, well, we get it in Leviticus. They say, no, you know, that means that you also have to think that shrimp, you can't eat any shrimp. The answer is absolutely. That's right. That's exactly what I believe. It packs a, a much stronger punch because we rest on all of the scripture as opposed to just right. a and, little and, bit. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, Yeshua speaks some some chilling words that really should strike fear in the hearts of his listeners. Well, he does that many times, but he says, don't think that all who call by my name yeah. are going to yeah. enter the kingdom. Yeah. For many will come to me in that day, say, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? That's right. Didn't we do these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. you I never knew you. Yeah. And uh, you worker of anomia, which is lawlessness. I never knew you. Could you imagine people who, that means that there are people who think that they know (laughs) that are running around doing things in Yeshua's name in Jesus name. And they're doing this and they're doing that and they're doing the other all in Yeshua's name. And he does not know them. That's right. Yeah. That's it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. That should, that should really put us on our faces. You know. All right. Well, hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Rob and I are going to talk once again uh, about circumcision. This is something that we talked about two weeks ago, but we're going to talk, bring it back to the first century, and we're going to talk about that. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. That's right. You are listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. Welcome back. And, uh, and you're listening to Caleb on the cello. Yeah, that's right. That's my old band. Uh, that's right. I was in a band. <laughs> I'm still in a band, but just a different band. Cello. Uh, that band was called The Forgery, and uh, that was probably one of my most favorite projects I've ever been in. A lot of, uh, actually, all, all the guys were from uh, from the church I grew up in, and we just had it. It was all instrumental. We had so much fun doing it. Uh, yeah, I miss, I miss playing with those guys. Oh, what can you do? Anyway, I play with a different group of guys now and they're, they're just as fun, just a different style of music. So now hopefully they're not listening to the show right now. Going, Man, <laughs> Caleb's not happy. It's two different complete beasts because yeah, they just, you know, the band I'm in now plays more of like a, uh, bluegrass folk, you know, uh, rock kind of a thing. Whereas, yeah, my other projects were not like that. Anyway. So, um, yeah, we've been having a good time here. We've been talking about, uh, well, different issues going on on Facebook and whatnot. If, uh, if you're a little, if you made your little children leave the room, uh, you can bring them back in because we're going to be talking about circumcision in the first century. 
All right, let's do it. Uh, Rob, first of all, I know that you, you've done uh, substantial work on this, and uh, the, you pull a lot from my dad's book, Fellow Heirs. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that that's such an important book, and it's, a, it's easy to read. It's, uh, I'll just give a little shameless plug here. For those who have not read uh, the book Fellow Heirs by Tim Haig, uh, it was originally published uh, by First Fruits of Zion, and now it's published by uh, Torah Resource. Um, it makes great uh, foundational reading for a, for a book group or a study group that wants to work through it together. But it's just important. Uh, and, and, and one of the one of the key wait, takeaways. I, I, I oh, should I should say also if if you don't have that book and you, and we're we're piquing your interest if you want to buy it, uh, you you will also be able to get it in the community package which is going to be called Foundations, which is going to be coming out here in the next couple of weeks. So if you have a community and you think you're going to get the community package, uh, then then you can get it there. You don't have to buy it individually. Go for it. Keep going, Rob. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, Tim Haig wrote this book, Fellow Heirs. He gets into uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the concept of, you know, what does the body of Messiah look like? He talks about... Uh, some of the terms in the Torah itself, like ger, what does a ger mean? Um, verses that seem to contradict with one uh, one with another within the Torah itself are just uh, explained in great detail with uh, reference, for example, to the Septuagint, the Greek Torah, which was, of course, a couple centuries before Yeshua's ministry. Um, and, and the historical framework is wonderful. Uh, that and and like I said, very accessible book. Um, and so I encourage you to get a hold of it if you don't have it already. If you have it and you haven't read it, grab it off the shelf and make sure you read it. Um, anyway, it's an easy what, read too. Yeah, yeah. What what I do is uh, I in full agreement with uh, Tim's perspective on the conversion uh, process or the ritual uh, conversion is indeed a, an invention. That has that is more or less historically traceable uh, through the Second Temple period, and it gains. It's kind of like a snowball effect, you know. It gains uh, as it as, as time rolls on, it gets bigger and bigger until pretty you can't stop it because it's defined its own trajectory, and um, it's not easy. It's just something we have to learn to talk about and discuss intelligently. Um, but uh, uh, with that as kind of the the initial jet of my interest in. Uh, exploring all the facets in the first century or second temple period as well of circumcision. I came across some other scholars that I've studied as well. Um, and uh, it's it's emerged in research over the last uh, few years that uh, you, there were multiple meanings of circumcision. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit uh, in our August 2012 uh, Torah Resource Institute conference in Tacoma, and we talked a little bit. And back in the uh, old days, <laughs> back in the old days, yeah, um, talked about circumcision and how, it, as a Judaic symbol, what it meant for different groups. And we have so many different texts outside the Bible. You know, from the Second Temple period, we can gauge and see how different texts treat the sign of circumcision. How do they define it? What does it mean for this community? What did it mean for that community? Uh, and so that helps us situate ourselves kind of into, by the time we get to the first century, you know, the time where the Apostle Paul is writing, um, we can 
get a sense of boy there's already some some history that the the circumcision doesn't just have a fixed meaning all the time it, it uh, the word can mean different things at different times and uh tim Hague also in his commentary uh, to romans and galatians talks about this as as well as in the online you can listen to some of the recent uh messages on the the epistle to romans that uh, bet hallel is going through uh, each shabbat mm-hmm. so i encourage people who haven't done that that's an amazing resource that's absolutely free it's and, just all you got to do is click it and listen and also attention. also rob uh, in terms of the audio for romans that's uh, that's being every week uh tim records more and uh, it, I think he's in Chapter 11 now. Anyway, uh, what, what's that? 12. 12. He's, I, 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 I just he, started Chapter 12. I, I hear the voice yelling from the next room, I'm in 12. Um, <laughs> you can tell how professional we are here at Torah Resource Radio. Um, <laughs> uh, so he's in, he's in Chapter 12. Once that's all packaged, if you've already purchased the Romans commentary in book form, then uh, shoot us an email and I'll, uh, I will send you the audio for free. Once it's finished, wait until it's finished and uh, you'll, you'll be able to get it for free. If you are still waiting to uh, purchase the Romans commentary, uh, you can either purchase it now and we'll send you the audio later. Or once the audio is finished, we're going to package that all together with the Romans commentary. So uh, it will be available to you at no extra charge, no matter which way you get the, uh, the printed commentary. Anyway, okay, so let's talk. One thing I want to talk about uh, here is you're talking about different, uh, the different beliefs of circumcision within the first century Judaisms, and we're going to make up that word Judaisms. And uh, so the question that I would have is, are we talking about, okay, we know that there were the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees. Uh, First of all, now I'm going to, I'm going to ask a couple of questions and then let you respond. First of all, is there a bit, was there a big difference between the idea of circumcision between those two major groups? The second question I'd have is, what other groups are you pulling into that? Are you talking about the Qumranis, the Sakari, uh, and and what are the backgrounds of those groups, and how, and what, what do we look at for to, to understand circumcision within those groups? Oh, that's a great question. What we have are, you know, we don't have any groups that survive, right? We can't go back and interview people, you know, until we or like Doctor Who and get the but but wouldn't the, you the but wouldn't you phone booth there <laughs> wouldn't you argue that uh, well maybe you wouldn't and maybe this is a good question because I'm not sure where you stand on this what, would you agree or would you uh, say that the modern Orthodox Judaism grew out of Pharisaic Judaism I think that's a, a fair uh, culture there's a cultural heritage there's a there seems to be a cultural continuity. However, uh, I think it's uh, while acknowledging that, I think it's important to also keep in mind that the earliest strata of rabbinic literature had no interest in uh, bragging about being heirs to the Pharisees. You know, they they um, very much preserved names of their more recent teachers, but they present them all uh, with the title of rabbi or rabban, or just like Hillel and Shammai, some just by their name. They don't uh, boast of a of a coming from Pharisees, and they don't See, call be, themselves Pharisees. One reason I ask is because um, many of our listeners probably know, some may not, but Ariel Berkowitz is one of the teachers that we have here at Torah Resource Institute, and he will be visiting uh, 
my neck of the woods, Tacoma, and then we will all, all the staff will meet in Spokane, Washington this summer uh, for, we have a yearly meeting and we're going to, with all the staff, we're going to get together and, and have that meeting. And so uh, when Ariel Berkowitz is in town, I hope to get him on the Rob and Caleb show. Now, I'm not sure when that's going to be uh, during the beginning part of his of his uh, stay or, or towards the end. He'll be here throughout the, the whole summer. Anyway, the, the point is, is that in his, uh, in his class on uh, Christianity, uh, Christian history, Christi- the history of Christianity, uh, he basically said that after the Bar Kokhba revolt, there were two kinds of, of, Jew- of Jewish sects left, and those sects were Pharisaic Judaism and the people of the way, i.e., the what became Christianity. Do you agree with that assessment, or uh, do you believe that uh, the other, like the the Sadducees and and uh, the Sicarii and all those, went I would, away a different way? I would way? quibble a little bit, okay, with uh, with our good friend Ariel on that point. This is, and I'll just give you the data by which I would do that. One is um, the uh, archaeological record, which shows, and this is something that I guess I, you know, I have the advantage of having been to Baltimore and, uh, for this last SBL meeting and then Chicago before that and attending some of the, uh, the sessions that are focused on uh, synagogue excavations in Israel, particularly in the north, in the Galilee. Um, and we we know that we just have uh, increasing number of uh, uh, amounts of data that show that there were thriving synagogue communities that didn't do things the way the rabbis say in their literature. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, a synagogue with a mosaic of, uh, you know, with the zodiac. You know, we have this all over the place. Why would there be a zodiac? Wait, Rob, are you saying that that uh, not everyone held to the the oral Torah that was handed down to Moses? I'm joking, <laughs> of course. I'm, I'm, no, and, and so we and then we have just the idea of imagery. You know, um, it's funny because you know if you look, you know, we have friends that are Orthodox Christians. You know, and and they use they do the iconography. You know, they um, have pictures of saints. And things like very, and just like friends that are Catholic that do the same thing. Um, and if you look into their literature, they you often see uh, priests in the Orthodox Christian tradition, or even um, in Catholicism. Though I haven't seen it directly in Catholicism, but I wouldn't be surprised um, uh, looking and actually citing these ancient synagogue murals and and mosaics with all these iconography of biblical figures as a precedent for um, believers in Yeshua to d- thus also decorate their places of worship with, uh, uh, you know, nicely, ele- nicely colored, you know, elegant um, icons, you know, images mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. of saints, etc. So, uh, but the rabbis, you know, in their literature would... Uh, don't seem to uh, really endorse such a practice. And that's just one example. Uh, Another is uh, there was a recent dissertation done uh, by one of the major universities, and i I, sorry I can't remember who wrote it, but it's on, uh, this person was able to do a lot of research and uh, trace the uh, priesthood beyond the destruction of the temple, and that has found uh, plenty of evidence to suggest that uh, priestly families retained 
their um, identity, um, sometimes independent of, of the rabbinic, the growth of the rabbinic authority for uh, several hundred years. Okay, but wait. wait. And so these are different types of, these are people, uh, these, the evidence, I guess, the reason I'm pointing these out, this reflects communities that, that sustained a sense of uh, being part of the people of Israel in one way or another without reference to rabbinic authority. And there was great diversity in that. And so I, I would say that after Bar Kokhba, um, for certain, the rabbis were not the leaders. They were not in charge after Bar Kokhba. The rabbis don't emerge as really leaders until, um, you know, in, in terms of larger world Jewry until the Middle Ages, really. You know, it's, uh, it's, and it's with the help, it's on the back of Islam, the rise of Islam that uh, in Babylonia after the, you know, they come and take over the Persians basically and appoint uh, rabbis as judges, as civil judges and, and empower them to, to make decisions for local Jewish communities to the dismay of some other Jews such as, you know, that's where we have like the care rights. Okay, so, uh, but we're getting back into sex now. We, we've, had shows on, <laughs> we've had shows on this. So, so the question, I, I think that we should ask the, the, the starting question that should, in first century Judaism is why, should, why today should we care? This is one question that we should always ask uh, just so that we can get some uh, foundation of what we're talking about. Why should we care about the different beliefs of circumcision in the first century? Paul obviously said that uh, circumcision was uh, useless now, right? Right, and that's exactly <laughs> why, is we need to understand. We don't believe that. Paul, for... we got to understand the world Paul was in and he, what he was, who was, was he arguing with? What, what was at stake? What was at stake in the letter to the Galatians? What was at stake with the, the letter to the Romans? And I think that when we see on the ground, you know, we see how circumcision is represented like in the book we call First Maccabees. We see how it's represented in the book we call Second Maccabees. Um, and these, to be clear, are not, uh, it's not like First Corinthians, Second Corinthians. These are completely different works that we've just labeled this way. Um, the book of Jubilees, I think, is uh, one of the biggest uh, sources because it was uh, authoritative at Qumran. So basically, what you're saying let, let me see let me see if I can sum up what you're saying so that uh, because maybe that'll help me understand better and hopefully our listeners as well. We, when we when we're looking at circumcision in the first century among these different sects, basically what we're saying is is that Paul was carrying on these conversations with different sects of Judaism, and so when he's talking to in his letters to different groups, he's addressing certain issues that everyone knew. And is that am I on the right track here? I would say by yes, I, I would say well, not I wouldn't say everyone. I, I, if you interviewed every Jew in the world, you know, in in the year fifty, they're not all going to tell you the same meaning of circumcision by any means. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think within the community of the way, within the believers of Yeshua, that uh, that knew their Jewish heritage, circumcision was a sign of the Messiah, uh, the Messiah to come. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, and. Uh, uh, and now that uh, Tim doesn't get into that in fellow heirs, I think it gets that. I mean, he might touch on that point, uh, but that's not the main uh, thrust of that. I think if uh, if anybody wants to research the sign of circumcision as points to the Messiah, I think the article that's available for download on Torah Resource, 
I think it does a good job of that. Or you could listen um, to our show from two weeks ago. Anyway, yeah, keep going. Yeah, that too. But <laughs> it, let me just dive into, for example, the Book of Jubilees. I think we have – there's enough connections between, say, for example, the Epistle to Galatians and who Paul seems to be in argument with. Not the Galatians themselves, but these other influencers or these troublers that he talks about. Um, it seems like these troublers probably held some sort of ideology uh, that is in alignment or resonates with what we find in the Book of Jubilees. And that is, it, there's, it's consisted of a few things. One is that Israel are like the angels. And, and uh, Jubilees teaches this, that Israel is like the angels in a few ways. Angels keep Shabbat. From the foundation of the world, angels keep Shabbat, and that's why Israel is called by God to keep the Shabbat, to be like angels. Now we should, angels, we keep, angels uh, keep Shavuot, now the we, Feast of Weeks. Now, hang on, Rob. I want to make, sh- make sure that everyone uh, is clear on this. We're referencing Maccabees because, as a historical doc- document, not as one that is, uh, has uh, divine authority. Jubilees, yeah. yeah. Jubilees, I'm sorry. Yeah, ju- and, and the reason why we're, we're saying, okay, so Jubilees was taken as authoritative from the community called the Yachad, or the communities of the Yachad, which is the communities that, you know, for which the Dead Sea Scrolls is the library, you know, that's kind of, we get a peek into their library. You know, what were they reading? What mm-hmm. did they hold is important. And the Book of Jubilees is one of those. And, uh, and Jubilees also uh, – so we know that there is a worldview that's shared with these um, uh, troublers that Paul's dealing with and within the book of Jubilees. Um, and uh, so the, this here's the picture. Yeah, yeah, and this is not an endorsement uh, for Jubilees as scripture by any stretch. Rather, it's, very, it's an invented book. Of, um, but, uh, but the people at Qumran did not consider it an invented book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, the the angels kept Shabbat. They kept Shavuot, and they associate the the feast of Shavuot in the Book of Jubilees is associated with the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and uh, the angel, the presence of angels at Sinai, which is a larger tradition. That's not just in Jubilees. But finally, the angels are said to be circumcised, which is a strange image. I know, it's a strange image. It's, I think it's unique among all our ancient Jewish writings outside the Bible. But so with, with the keeping of the Shabbat, with the giving of the Torah, and with the circumcision now specifically on the eighth day, that Israel is not only like angels, but enjoys the protection of angels and, and protection from destruction. And it's associated with the promise of the Holy Spirit in the Book of Jubilees. So, circumcision on the eighth day is a an issue that Paul was dealing with. There were people that in the in Paul's day that said, if you were not circumcised on the eighth day, you were doomed to destruction. So, what? Who? Who was that though? Who? What? What sect was was preaching that? Well, we don't we don't know what sect because I mean it's whoever whoever uh, held to the Book of Jubilees, and I would say that it it, it might have been a group we call the Essenes today. Um, it might have been a group. Well, Yahad held Jubilees as uh, authoritative. 
So, so, but even then, then what, then how but we don't, what we don't have, we don't have a, you know, it's, it's sadly, we don't have a website for the scenes where we can go and see their <laughs> statement of faith. So, you know? I mean, but, all but, we have is text, but all I guess we have is text. I guess my question is, is that, okay, so you're the, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're the guy who has a child and, uh, you screwed up and you accidentally circumcised him on the ninth day. How did you get your son in then? Yeah, they, they, the, the group, any groups that upheld the Jubilees as sacred text, so would have say too bad. But are you are you saying that it specific that Jubilees specifically comes out and says you have to be circumcised on the eighth day or you're not in? Yes. Yep. Can't be before. Can't be after. So then, was that so? Did, so, so did, so, so did so, these groups also believe in the afterlife? Or was it, or were they more like the Sadducees? Do you think where it was like, okay, you're one of God's chosen people, you'll be blessed temporally, but once you die, you die, it's done. You know, I I can't speak to the specific afterlife view that's in Jubilees, but the idea of of the resurrection is a general theme that's assumed in now not all because we know the Sadducees, like you said. Um, did not hold to a resurrection. So, okay, what what implications does this have for us, though? Why do, why does it matter if there's a group out there who thought that, that you had to be circumcised on the eighth day or you were out? This is one of the one of the uh, type of popular. Oh, and, and you know, I didn't even mention this is the other side to that is that uh, Jubilees is clear. Jews are not to eat with Gentiles. I mean, it's given as a very specific commandment. Now, of course, we know that commandment's not in the Torah. It's, there's no commandment that says don't don't have table ship, table fellowship with mm-hmm. uh, Gentiles. Yeah, of course. So, the, it's little things like this that um, we can see. That, but we don't just take jubilees. So we we what we do is we kind of look at the worldview that jubilees. Uh, uh, paints, and then we look at a book like, for example, First Maccabees, where circumcision is um, a sign of allegiance to the Maccabees, and to accept circumcision in the Book of Maccabees means to ally with the whole has the Jewish agenda people. over against the Greek Gentiles. So there's a there's a, sh- a sharp difference between who's, whose team are you on? You're it's us or them, and if you're us, then circumcision is absolutely required. So it's not necessarily in this case. It's not uh, it doesn't have anything to do with Abraham specifically. It's not about the covenant of a promised you know the miraculous birth. So wait, you do know? you do you think that Paul was speaking against the people that let's call them the eighth dayers? The people who said you're not in unless you're circumcised on the eighth day. Do you think that Paul speaks directly to them at any point? I think the only place I think that the eighth day is really evident is in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 1. I think with Galatians, it's, it seems like it might be a watered-down type of theology from Jubilees that he's writing against. Because um, it's like a, a half, it's someone who's... Um, kind of negotiated a little bit on the eighth day only because we're dealing with adult Gentile males who are ha- who are uh, being described as having an opportunity to what the verb this verb called become circumcised which is really this code word to um, 
go through some sort of initiation ritual process, including a physical, you know, the rite of physical circumcision, but also this education process wherein a person uh, adopts a very specific eschatology and, you know, general religious worldview and becomes an insider, no longer to be what we call acrobustia, no longer to be identified as uh, so conversion. a foreskin. So conversion is what you're saying. Yeah, and I was trying, you could tell I was trying to avoid using that word because Paul doesn't have – they're not using the word conversion. They don't use that word. He uses the word circumcision. Exactly. And, and so this, this word circumcision means so much more. When Paul is – when he's arguing against circumcision, here's just maybe a rule of thumb. When Paul's arguing – when he seems to be arguing against circumcision, my position – is that those passages, this verb circumcision, refers not to a physical rite um, representing um, the faith of Abraham in, in the one to come, like, we, like he talks about in Romans 4. Rather, he's arguing, so he's not arguing against that. He's arguing against this process of what we would later call conversion or this process that people were in a position where they felt like an outsider and they were afraid and they felt like they didn't have all it. they weren't full members and they felt um, compelled, like, I got to do what this other group is telling me. Otherwise, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not right with God. And I, I you know, we see that I going be on an insider. To- and so they go through this man made religion, this man made group. Like uh, to become a card carrying club member, but that, that that whole thing is still going on today. The UMJC uh, and the MJAA are now, you know, within Messianic Judaism, uh, a term that I'm more and more trying to get away from. But uh, within Messianic Judaism, you have uh, these groups saying that if you really want to be, you know, if you really want to keep the commands of God, you need to go through this ceremony and become one of us. Yeah, I think Paul would say that has absolutely no value. <laughs> Just, why don't you say think, it exactly how say, it is? If that's the reason, <laughs> if that's the reason, he'd say there's no value to that whatsoever. The circumcision that it would have value would be the, the circumcision that is he describes in Romans 4. And that's know? the end-all point then. That's what we're getting to, is that the idea of some kind of conversion is what Paul was talking about. In, yeah, in, so now you can be called... You're, you're no longer a Gentile. Now you're a Jew. I think, Paul, I think my reading of the Scripture, and I think it's a general bottom line at Torah Resource and everything we publish, is God is happy with Jews and happy with Gentiles, keeping them. Uh, he wants both. They, it, they, we don't need people jumping one ship to another. That's right. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Um so, so I want to make. I mean, I don't. I don't want to cut us off here. You know, uh, what what other impl- are there other impl- implications to the idea of these different uh, views of circumcision in the first century? Well, there there is. I mean, one has to do. You know, like we've talked about with circumcision specifically, it's a sim- a Jewish symbol. We could say, or it's a biblical symbol inherited from ancient Israel. That in the Second Temple period, different groups. Uh, took and in different historical situations gave it spin. This spin spun it this way. Some spun it that way. And it uh, over time, uh, generally, and Paul uses it this way as well. The peritome, which means the circumcision, like a capital C, generally means uh, Jews. 
I mean, it can just mean that. Um, but but however, it it when it in uh, situations where it's contrasted with acrobustia, which sometimes is translated uncircumcised, but it really means foreskin. Okay, it is. It's like an. It's like we're better than you. You know, I mean, you're you are the foreskins. We're in. You're out. We're, you're out. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, doesn't David call the the Philistines the uncircumcised? Yeah, he call, he calls Goliath that. He calls him a dog. <laughs> so it goes it goes back all the way. I mean, or no? Well, he said he actually doesn't. He, uh, Goliath calls himself a dog. <laughs> he says, "Am I a dog?" Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Um, the idea then is definitely is the idea that David didn't uh, that he was outside of the covenant. Um, but that same meaning then comes in the first century to have very sharp political. Um, uh, ramifications that God never intended. God, you know, he—it's he, understandable from the history of of uh, antagonism, you know, Gentile antagonism of Jews in the later Second Temple period. Mm-hmm. Why uh, Jews would would just end up culturally kind of just saying, you know, don't associate with Gentiles. Just don't eat, don't eat with them. Don't associate with them. You that's can do still, business with them. But that's still going on today. Interestingly, re, I mean, recently, very recently, I, I was uh, debating back and forth. Uh, I would post my responses on my blog, and, and uh, which you can read at uh, TorahResourceBlog.com. Um, and then this rabbi known as the college rabbi would post his responses on his, on his blog, um, and basically it came down to, you know, I said that Christians seem to be more, uh, easy to talk to and, and accepting, which he had a problem with. Well, then over the course of three back and forths, I basically invited him to Arab Shabbat meal at my house to which he said, absolutely. You know, in, in the end he said, no, why? Because I'm a Gentile and the, and the, or, you know, even though he thought, I think he thought I was, uh, you know, Jewish by blood. But my believing in Yeshua then made me a Gentile, and uh, the oral Torah says that you're not allowed to eat with a Gentile because they might slip something unkosher into your food, or they might, you know, try offer it to idols. Um, and so you're not allowed to eat with a Gentile. Essentially, right. is what is right. what the well, so bottom that, line that's was. That's where that dividing line, uh, and we we see it in Acts chapter ten. I mean, Peter obviously, yeah, obviously, is influenced by a very strong cultural um, tradition that's not in the Torah, but he didn't necessarily divide it up. He, you know, took the, took a vision from the Lord to really uh, shake up Peter. So he started to discern the difference um, in the ramifications of the difference between the, the written word of God, what the Ruach HaKodesh is leading through the growth of, of uh, Messiah's, commission in the earth uh, and the inherited man-made traditions that were had be, were become institutionalized more or less um, and but when it comes to naming like this sect he was fighting against this sect or that it's hard to do because we did they're not always named you know they, um, they just were dealing with texts and descriptions in those texts and we try to from our historical perspective try to do our best to represent um, the way things were without importing or trying not to at least trying to be aware of uh, and limiting how much modern you know scholarly terminology we impose on um, our first century 
texts. Okay, so let's wrap it up here because we're we're actually coming to the end of our time. So basically, the point is is that Paul obviously was talking to different sects of Judaism with within believers, but uh, was not talking a, about uh, circum the actual physical act of circumcision, but rather the the circumcision, uh, the the ritual conversion circumcision. Is that what I'm getting out of this? Yeah, that's that's what I believe. I, I believe that Paul was not talking about the the right of circumcision, um, especially in circles where the meaning is specifically Messiah-oriented, um, but where it had to do in, in the uh, kind of in this polemic world where it's like, boy, if, if you are not part of the capital C circumcision, then you have no salvation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the only way in is to go through our little nine-step process over two years or what. I'm just making that up. I mean, later the rabbis do develop that. Um, uh, and that you are somehow incomplete as a, um, as a non-Jew. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the other thing, too, is it's clear, is that just because uh, a Gentile could be physically circumcised, but from the, quote, official circumcision group still be labeled foreskin. Okay. Because they didn't do it the right way. They, did it for, they didn't do it for the officially sanctioned reasons or under the officially sanctioned auspices. So they've, um, so, so, and we have this in early, earliest strata of rabbinic literature too, that a an, that an non-Israelite who is circumcised is still considered foreskin. Because they're trying, and so that's how we know that this word circumcision is uh, can mean can have this ideological meaning, meaning you're just on you're just on the team, you're on the Panthers team. You know, you might dress like a Panther, but you're not on the Panthers team. When it when it comes down to going out on the field, you're not going to be there with us. You know, this idea of um, there's more to it than just the physical right, mm-hmm. and not only that. Uh, according to the uh, Mishnah, an uncircumcised Israelite, so an Israelite male who is physically uncircumcised is still counted as circumcision, hmm. as circumcised when it comes to, like, for example, oaths, so the legal uh, status of oaths and things like this. So uh, um, an uncircumcised Israelite, physically uncircumcised Israelite male is still considered to be part of the capital C circumcision. Hmm. And on the contrary, a physically circumcised non-Israelite is nonetheless, by the rabbis, considered foreskin or law. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not always literal. It's, it has to do with what team uh, you're, <laughs> <laughs> that the rabbis are saying you're on. You're either inside or outside. Um, and it's, uh, so I think um, that it's important from our historical uh, side to be aware of these little nuances and to to uh, bring those to light and in, into the discussion when we're reading passages in Romans and in Galatians, etc. That uh, to our Christians, uh, brothers and sisters, are, are just assuming that it means one thing. Oh, Paul, uh, when Paul talks about circumcision, he's talking about Galatians, or he's talking about Genesis 17, and therefore it's done away. Therefore the Torah is done away. And it's like, no, no, mm-hmm. you, you, we need to, we need to to not import our later agenda into what Paul, and we want to try to uh, look around, get into Paul's world by looking at these other issues that were going on 
at the time as expressed in these different non-biblical texts to help us. And it's not just one other text. It's, there's a, what we do is we look, as historians, look at all these other documents, and we can kind of see some trends. And that helps us see, uh, that's the best we can do, uh, you know, this side of Olam Haba, to try to see through Paul's eyes, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and try to gauge um, the issues the way that he was encountering them rather than uh, our maybe reform tradition, you know, uh, agenda uh, mm-hmm. or what have you. All right. Well, so that's uh, – I, I think that wraps up our, our look at circumcision. Uh, you may have noticed that we didn't do a tech minute today, and that's okay. Uh, we'll do one maybe next week. I'll just have to see what I have on my uh, on my phone or on my computer that I think is a, is a stellar – a stellar uh, thing that everybody should have or not have. Maybe I should do a bad re- uh, a review on something I didn't like. There you go. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I will say this. Okay, so a couple days ago I emailed my friend uh, Adam, who I reference pretty much weekly now on this show. Um, and have you heard about the Atari uh, the Atari game, the, the urban legend? Well, yeah, the, the, the E.T.? Yeah, so uh, let me let me explain this to you. This is this is excellent. If you're a gamer out there and you haven't heard about this, then take your head out of the sand, um, because this is this is great. Now, I was I was just recently born when this happened, but uh, Rob was Rob was probably right about the age. Did you have? I had an Atari you, computer. Yeah, see, I had an, I had an Atari computer. We're talking early eighties. Well, eighty two on the uh, heels of uh, Steven Spielberg's classic movie. Th- that's e. right. Of course. So, so in so in eighty two. Uh, Atari decided to make this game uh, based on the movie uh, E.T. And uh, I was born in 81, and I myself did have a, a Atari when I was growing up. I had Pitfall and Pac-Man and all the, all the great games. If you're, some, if you're a child now who is growing up on Xbox and, uh, and PS2s and 3s and all that kind of stuff, I'm not a gamer. So I, I, you know that, that stuff is totally out of my realm. But... Uh, you would not if you're if you're a kid growing up and you've seen these these kind of gaming consoles you would not believe what an Atari actually looked like it it, it was it's laughable anyway so Atari I, I I love this story so much I love this story that's why I gotta share it because I gotta you know I love talking about this kind of stuff anyway so Atari makes this game E T the extraterrestrial in 1982 in 1983 now I don't know if this is true but I read something the other night that said that they they had a quarterly loss of over 300 million dollars um, and so this game E T was hailed as the worst video game ever made and to this day to this day many people still say it is by far the worst video game ever made. Well, there's an urban legend that has been going around in the gaming community for uh, ever since '83 that Atari, the company, instead of instead of uh, I don't know what else they would have done, they packed up all these boxes full of this game, put them on 16 different trucks, took them out into the New Mexico desert, and buried them, just so that they could try to lessen the shame of getting that many bad games out into the world. Well, this urban legend has gone on for, you know, obviously 30 some odd years. And, uh, so Atari now owns Xbox and Xbox is doing a documentary on gaming and you'll only be able to watch it on the Xbox. I don't own an Xbox, so I won't be able to see it. But they decided to go out into the desert and to unearth the boxes in this landfill 
of Atari games, which they did. They just they it's been in the news. They just unearthed all these, you know, the 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 urban legend was true. I just think that's so great. My wife asked me the other the, the other night, what are they going to do with them now? Why would they undig them? And I said, well, they should sell them because every gamer out there wants one of the Atari landfill ET games so they can frame it and put it on their mantle. Right. Are you a gamer, Ron? And some will have. I'm not, but I do remember <laughs> having the Atari. And some might have. To, I think it was called the 2600. Yeah, that's right. When it, uh, some might even have in their garage somewhere stashed away an old 2600 with a little component. Or no, what do they call it? It's a little composite TV hookup, or, or yeah. I think it hooked up to your. I think it hooked up to your antenna. What you did is you had a special box that you would hook up. You know, unscrew these two little things. You'd screw that little box to your antenna, and then you'd hook the Atari game machine to your antenna, and so audio and video then would feed to your TV screen. Oh man, so and great! And you'd have a little joystick with a single little button, and you could have two of those hooked up to the console, and then you'd plug a cartridge. In. So to play a game, you'd plug that cartridge in, and you, here was the thing: they didn't have the ability to write uh, a record at that time. So you would you would have that game in your car, in the cartridge. As long as the cartridge was in the game and the or in, in the console and the power was on, you'd save your scores. But the instant you pull that cartridge out, <laughs> it was all gone. Yeah, and you put it back in, you're back to square one again. Have, yeah, you know, I sold my Atari to my next door neighbor for fifteen dollars years ago, which I regret oh. horribly now. Uh, yeah. But I still have my original Nintendo sitting underneath my one of uh, the TVs in my house, and uh, it's it's all hooked up and ready to go. So if you're listening to this, if you ever come visit me, come on over. We'll play some Mario. Uh, you know what they'll probably do? This is what I would like to see, and maybe someone, maybe they're already working on this. Is they get a hold of one, you know, one of these cartridges that's in that's in prime condition and uh, some software engineers get in there, they get an old 2600 and they, they pull out the code and what they do is then they create a replica video game. So they've already they, done it, man. They've already oh, you done can it. Play the, uh, oh yeah. I, oh, I didn't you know. Can, you can, you can play, you can play emulators on, uh, on, on your computer right now. Just jump online and say Atari emulator and uh, you can play all of them, man. No, even, uh, Oh, even the, UT, the uh, ET game. You know, I, you know, they might have skipped the ET that, game. Just... That's what I mean. I think that they, they can now take that game and revert and create the emulator oh, no. ET game, so oh, people can actually so go bad. and see what the worst. They can actually play the worst, worst video game, game in ever. History. Yeah, well, so that's uh, something. It is something. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't. I, I'd rather play the worst game in history rather than the second to the worst. Have, game. have you ever seen the? Uh, I think it's a. I don't know if it's a YouTube series or whatnot, but it's a series called Kids Respond to. Have you ever seen that? Uh-uh, no. Oh my word! I just saw one the other day. It was called. Uh, Kids respond to walk uh, the Walkman. <laughs> oh man, it was the fu- it's it's kids. It, it's kids that are like eight nine years old, right? And they give them a piece of outdated technology like a Walkman. That and, is and, and then the kids have to try to figure out first of all how to use it, and then they respond to like how stupid the, you know. Like the, the guy's like, "Oh yeah, this Walkman when it came out was like two hundred dollars." One kid was pretty smart. He goes, "Well, my iPad cost about five hundred, so I guess it's not that bad." <laughs> Oh, oh man anyway all right enough talk uh we've gone over time that's fine hey next week i you know while we've been talking i've actually been thinking about what we can talk about next week it, it, i read a great article about uh the upper or the, you know the the upper room where uh where Yeshua and his disciples had the had the last supper Anyway, we could talk about some of those kind of stuff. Anyway, anyway, so uh, join us next week when we will figure out something to talk about that we hope glorifies our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Mm-hmm.